Blog Talk Radio. I'm Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Life and our producer, Marty Oakley. Thank you for spending your evening with us. Tonight marks the end of our fourth year and is our last program for 2022. I hope that each of you are ready for Christmas, Hanukkah, or Kwanzaa and are excited about spending time with your family and friends. Often I wish I was bringing you a program of uplifting topics and things to delight your day, but the topics that no one wants to discuss are often the ones that may save your life. Many of our listeners will have a sad time during these holidays because this year they lost a precious family member to the very dangers that we're going to talk about this evening, rogue hospice, hospitals, nursing homes, and the exposure to medical dangers. Our discussions have nothing to do with which political or religious side you fall on. We all bleed the same blood and grieve when we lose someone or see injustices not reined in or prosecuted. I hope over this year we have been able to provide some insight and knowledge to you with the information we have shared from doctors, nurses, lawyers, pro-life agencies, victims' families sharing their heartfelt tragedies. Also, the important information that Marty and Kaz share on their weekly broadcast about guardianship, which is also a travesty against our most vulnerable. Prayers that next year we will be able to bring more light to the topic in a broader way and be able to make a bigger difference. We all fight the fight in our own way. Tonight, our program will shed light on many medical crimes committed in the great state of Texas, But don't get comfortable thinking it isn't happening where you are, because I'm sure it is. The stories you will hear tonight took place in hospitals. Years ago, I would have said, no, that can't happen here. We live in the United States, not a third world country. But I've had to eat my words. Anything can and does and is happening right here and mostly being condoned. There are a lot of bad actors in the medical arena to go around, as you will hear tonight, but there are a lot of good guys, too. We are all at risk if we do not wake up and pay close attention. Do not be a sheep led into a false sense of security and ignore warning signs. And as you will hear tonight, you absolutely cannot be naive and think all doctors, nurses, and staff have been properly trained or vetted. As I do in each program, I want to give you some helpful resources before I introduce our guest speaker. Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice, written by Michelle Young Doers, is an excellent book. Michelle was a hospice respiratory therapist who is a true warrior for the elderly and chose patients over hospice manipulations. 
She shares an inside view of people who care only about the bottom line and not patient's life. There is another book, Stealth, Euthanasia, Healthcare Tyranny, written by Ron Panzer, who was also a hospice whistleblower nurse. The book can be downloaded for free or you can purchase it. Halovoice.org advocates for the rights of the medically vulnerable. Their hotline, 888-221-4256, if you have questions or if you're aware of the dangers they're always looking for volunteers to help, so you can contact them. LifeLegalDefenseFoundation.org has access to pro-life attorneys in most states. Euthanasia Prevention Coalition is another excellent resource. Foundation Aiding the Elderly is another advocate site. And Murdered by Hospice Facebook group is a group of people who have experienced hospice betrayal firsthand, and they share their grief. There is also a tabs file that is very helpful with resources. And since we're talking about the great state of Texas tonight, TexasRightToLife.com actively advocates for people. And almost every state has a right to life group if you Google your state. Tonight, our guest is Will Maddox, who is a journalist and managing editor for DCEO Magazine and DCEO Healthcare. Will was a teacher and a soccer coach for eight years before he was fortunate enough to transition to journalism, which had always been a dream for him. He began in hyper-local news covering the neighborhood where he lived in Dallas, Texas, and then in 2018 began working for D Magazine Partners in Dallas. As part of D Magazine's business team, his main beat is in the business of healthcare in North Texas, where he covers everything from innovation and leadership to hospital transparency and fraud. He covers day-to-day healthcare news and writes Deeper Dive magazine features each month. Now, I'm sure many of us have been following the Novus Hospice fraud case in Frisco, Texas, with CEO Bradley Harris, and we have been appalled that the money-making scheme came at the expense of innocent victims who were pawns in this pay-to-play game. And once again, the crime is for Medicare and Medicaid fraud and not about the people that were betrayed by hospice. As we've often said, follow the money. We will also discuss Dr. Dunst, given the name Dr. Death, not Kevorkian, who maimed 33 out of 38 of his patients during surgery. The horrors that this man, if we can call him that, who mutilated these people while they were in the most vulnerable state in surgery is none other than that of a monster, a sociopath, who apparently took pleasure out of maiming people. And we will discuss the most recent medical alleged crime of Dr. Ronaldo Ortiz, an anesthesiologist accused of tampering with IV bags, resulting in 12 cardiac complications and the death of one colleague and one young man. This story just broke at the end of November, so it is still in the investigative stage, so we'll try to refer to it as alleged. Join me this evening in welcoming Will Maddox to the program. So, Will, I'll give you a few minutes to start talking. Um, I'd like for you to talk to us about Novus first and to shed information on these heinous crimes. 
Great. Well, thank you, Marsha, for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and yeah, I will. Uh, I'll do my best to shed some light. Although it sounds like uh, your your listeners and yourself are super well educated, so it should be a fun conversation. Um, so yeah, a lot of this actually happened before I was, um, you know, kind of back in my teaching days. I was sort of aware of it from reading the news, but I kind of when I got the job uh, with DCEO, this case was sort of in the sentencing, the trial was going on in like my first few weeks. of, uh, So I kind of hopped in and sort of got to learn about uh, all the hairy details um, kind of on the back end as I was sort of following the, the sentencing. But um, so Novitz is a, uh, was one of the larger um, hospice providers here in North Texas. It was based in Frisco, which is um, about 45 minutes north of Dallas, you know, part of the greater uh, metroplex area, you know, a, a kind of a, a fancy suburb, basically. Um, and uh, basically from about tw- 2012 to 2015, uh, FBI sort of, um, you know, got word of this organization submitting false claims for hospice services, giving kickbacks to physicians for referring their patients to hospice um, and uh, recruiting patients that, you know, didn't have uh, the criteria needed to, to have hospice care. Um, so the scheme, I think, was going on for a few years. Um, it, it took a lot, of iterations, a lot of different iterations of that. You know, one one piece of it was, uh, and this is, you know, me covering healthcare fraud, I see, I see these same things I'm sure you you all do as well over and over again um, so one is sort of the you refer patients to us uh, and we can build you know Medicare or Medicaid and we'll give you a kickback um, so that was one piece of it uh, that's often done through you know metal, medical directors as they're called um, they kind of give them a medical director title and salary and um, you know usually those people those physicians in this case as well were physicians that had access to patients who were elderly, whether they were in uh, nursing homes or just, um, you know, or through another, some, it was also a lab company that was involved that would kind of get these folks information uh, and then that would allow the novice folks to call them and to recruit them to hospice, uh, whether or not they really needed it or qualified. Um, and that's, you know, a co- I'm sure you all know as well, a common um, you know, uh, negative aspect of the hospice industry these days is just uh, just that recruitment piece. Um, uh, there was another, so that was one aspect, right, of, of the fraud. And then once the patients got there, um, that Novus was, the CEO of Novus was a guy named Bradley Harris, who was an accountant by trade with no medical background. Um, and, you know, after... Um, not long after founding the, the business and sort of running it relatively normal, um, you know, all the investigators and court documents said that basically things started shifting there at Novus and um, away from the physicians sort of having face-to-face meetings with patients um, and, you know, certifying what medicines they need or where they qualified for hospice and into sort of the, the business side of the office, whether it was the director of operations and then Mr. Harris himself were both, um, you know, calling a lot of the shots medically as well as on the business side. Um, and, um, you know, part of, 
part of the scheme there was to move patients um, as quickly as possible to continuous care, which I'm sure you all know more about than I do, but uh, you can, uh, obviously it's a higher level of service and you can bill more for that. Um, and so they would try and move these patients as soon as they got them enrolled into continuous care, whether they needed it or not, um, and they would, you know, uh, profit more from that. Um, and then the, you know, the most um, scary and wild part of this story is um, just some of the evidence that, that was uncovered at trial that, um, you know, Mr. Harris was actively directing and uh, as well as the director of operations were directing the, the nurses who ended up being um, in charge of medication levels and that sort of thing. Um, there were uh, blank prescription pads that the doctors had pre-signed that allowed Mr. Harris and other employees to just kind of change up the uh, prescriptions and what people needed, and they would, um, you know, change the Schedule II controlled substances uh, for patients without that guidance from, from the physician. And, um, you know, while, like, like you said, this is a medical fraud case, not, not a murder, um, there was, there's lots of evidence that Brad, uh, Bradley Harris was directing the nurses to, um, to cause the patients to die quickly by giving them, you know, higher doses of, you know, whatever medication they were on. Um, and so, yeah, so obviously if you can get those folks um, off your roll because you're, you know, you're limited in the number of amount of time you can, you know, uh, get, <clears throat> you can bill for continuous care and for, you know, hospice in general, which I'm sure I'm not saying anything new to you all. And so if it took too long for these patients to die, there would, you know, the, Mr. Harris would, would instruct these nurses to um, up their, um, up their medication sort of at the end of life to, to get them to die quick, more quickly, um, which is, you know, just, heartbreaking for, for those families and for those patients and that sort of thing. Um, you know, a lot of morphine, hydrocodone, these were the, a lot of the drugs they were using. You know, uh, like I said, they, uh, the doctors, the, the two main doctors that went to trial, Dr. Hershey and Dr. Gibbs, um, you know, basically had, had turned over their, you know, prescription number, prescription pads to the nurses and uh, other, other employees at, at Novus to use at their discretion. Um, and yeah, there was a, there was a quote from, you know, from the trial, one of the nurses basically said, you know, I was the doctor, um, and, you know, making decisions that like, like you said, they're not necessarily supposed to make or trained to make. Um, and yeah, all in the, all in the service of making more money, moving, uh, enroll one, enrolling more patients and then two, getting them, uh, you know, moving them along. Uh, getting them off the hospice rolls once they were no longer profitable or once they kind of exceeded their time limit. Uh, so, so yeah, super, super scary stuff. Um, yeah, Aaron, do you have other kind of specific? I, I can keep talking, or if there's something I missed, feel free to. Well, I, drop I wanted a question to ask in. you. Sure. When we were talking, when you were talking about continuous care, now they were actually moved into hospitals, into the facility there at Novus where they had patients in beds. Is that correct? Um, oh, you might have just gotten out of my, you know, I'm not 100% sure if okay. Novus had its own, <laughs> its own actual location or beds. I haven't seen anything that said that. I know that a lot of them were actually in 
nursing homes, but you know, I don't, I don't, I, okay. I haven't seen anything that was talking about Novus's actual facility. Okay, so I think um, one of the things that when I was reading um, about Nurse Love, which you know, imagine having the name of Nurse Love and you're murdering people. Um, she was one of sure. the ones that. Um, Harris had sent her a text, which they had, that said, mm-hmm. find me and somebody make him go bye-bye. And he would yeah. also say, you know, that this person's living too long. And Nurse Love would make the comment that when she went into her evening schedule, that they would not leave alive. And she would give mm-hmm. them extra morphine, like you said. You know, they had prescriptions. They didn't have – the doctor just wrote a prescription, and they gave them whatever they wanted, whatever dose they wanted to give them. And she would say – she bragged about it, the fact that when she left her shift, they would be dead. And I guess she got paid more money for that. And the other drug, they um, wrote out prescriptions for morphine, hydromorphone, and fentanyl were the three drugs that they were using on them. Now, um, during that time, I believe that the doctors would say that they were qualified for hospice, that they met the criteria, but they didn't even, the doctors didn't even see the patients. Right. Yeah, so, yeah I mean, that was part of the, you know, the, uh, you know, Harris was just putting pressure on these, um, you know, nurses to recruit patients and uh, whether, you know, I think one of the nurses had a connection to a, uh, like a lab of some kind. And so they got data, you know, they got their their information from there. They would kind of call and connect with the family recruit. And then the, yeah, the physicians would just kind of sign off or say they had met with these patients and say that they qualified for, um, you know, whether it was qualified for hospice first off and then, and then following for, you know, for continuous care without doing that face-to-face meeting. Um, and, yeah, Nurse Love, you know, who, who eventually, uh, you know, pled guilty and worked with the prosecution, um, yeah, had some pretty, you know, some pretty uh, damning text exchanges with, uh, with, you know, Mr. Harris and, you know, things like, yeah, make them go bye-bye. I think there was, I remember reading about, um, you know, she was sort of known as, like the nurse that that could make this 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 happen, right? They could get these patients off right. the rolls, and you know she would say, "Oh yeah, what I do, I work like a charm." You know, what I do works like a charm was one quote. Um, Mr. Harris said, "You know, give the Jessica CC orders, um, continuous care orders," and I think the implication was, you know, Jessica Jessica Love, uh, you know, is. Um, you know, when she takes care of these patients when they're in continuous care, they they die and they, you know, quote-unquote go bye-bye, as he, as he said. Um, so, yeah, she was kind of, you know, it was almost like a, a it was a skill, right? Uh, she was, uh, there was a sense of, a sociopath. you know, pride and I would imagine prestige at the company for, you know, her proficiency in, in making this happen. Right. Well, that's sociopath. Um, and each one of those doctors, when they would bring a new enrollee in, would get $150 per um, right. each patient. Um, you mentioned about right. yeah, the... There was, uh... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. You can go ahead. I was just thinking, well, yeah, he... yeah, there was that kick butt, the kickbacks for, you know, 100 150 bucks per for, um, you know, patient. There was another quote of, uh, you know, Harris saying, 
you know, find me patients who will die in 24 hours, you know, and if this person would just die, you know, he was, you know, like you said, sociopathically sort of focused on, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting patients one and then getting them to die two um, so that he could, you know, milk every, uh, every dollar out of them and, and move them along. Pretty right, scary. just a revolving door of, you know, commodities. Mm-hmm. That's all he cared about was making money off of them. And at one point, um, I think that there was a there is a cap. And by let's see, what he started doing is recruiting new patients, and he negotiated with Express Medical, and mm-hmm. they would bring in patients, and they actually were giving him personal data, and they were just right. handing it out to him. And then I think his wife was involved, right? Um, Harris's wife yes, was, she was also, also one of the one sentence would go recruit. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they they were recruiting big. people. Um, there was yeah, there was multiple. I think there was actually two companies at least at first that basically had all the same staff. The other name of the company was I think Op- Optum or Optium, um, and they were both they were both the same company. They had all the same staff, the same address, um, the same health record. Um, system and and yeah so I mean recruiting was a huge deal I think one of the one of the like I said I think one of the nurses had a connection to the express medical um, you know these physicians that were the quote unquote medical directors often worked at or had connections to patients in nursing homes and so they were able to you know get those patients uh, information get them enrolled um, and uh and yeah, and then be able to, you know, make as much money as they could off of them before they, before they died, um, whether mm-hmm. you know naturally or you know from the, from the means of what the what was happening there at the, you know, from the providers. Now, were you able to? I didn't see anything, but were you able to find out if any of the family members did any of them come forward and? you know, have a loved one who didn't even meet the criteria, or were most of these people, you know, that are in nursing homes and facilities, a lot of times they don't have family and they don't have an advocate. Hmm. So sure. was there anything about that ever that you were aware of with the families? Yeah, there were a couple stories um, that came out. Again, I, I wasn't involved before before my time, but um, but there were a couple stories from family members who – um, you know, who came out and said, um, you know, my, I think it was their mother, you know, seemed, uh, seemed healthy and, you know, didn't make sense how quick they went, um, that sort of thing. And, you know, like I did ask, I, I, I talked to some folks at the, uh, U.S. attorney's office in, uh, in preparation from this. And one question, you know, that I'm sure you, everyone, you know, I heard you mention at the top, you know, that these folks are, often prosecuted for fraud um, and not, um, you know, murder or, murder. you know, something more, you know, uh, more violent or whatever. Um, and, you know, the sources at the attorney's office, you know, talked to me about, um, you know, just how difficult it is, I guess, from their perspective to, you know, to prove, I guess, there's a but-for cause, you know, that basically they have to prove that, 
this person um, would not have died but for what was done, you know, at the uh, at the nursing, I mean, at, with via the hospice provider and and staff, um, and you know, right or wrong, it's uh, you know, from their perspective, it's just very difficult to to prove because so many of these patients are very sick, you know, suffering from Alzheimer's and kind of at the end of their life um, one way or another. Um, that said, there were definitely a couple folks, um, you know, that uh, that were in there. There's a couple of Dallas Morning News stories kind of when this all first was breaking of family members of, of, of Novus patients who, you know, at least were questioning what was happening and there was no way they could really prove, um, you know, what was done and that sort of thing or what, what you know the the intent, I guess, of of what was happening, um, but but yeah, there definitely was a um, an effort by by family members to sort of question or to push and to see what um, you know was really going on. But it would seem to me that with when it came out in the trial about the text messages that he said, find me somebody, make him go bye-bye, where Nurse Love admitted that she, before her shift ended, the person would be dead, it would seem that mm-hmm. that would be enough evidence for them to, you know, they killed people. And yeah. I, it just always... I, it always surprises me and makes me angry that in the murders in hospice that they never go after the people for killing them, and they know they did. You know, whether you can mm-hmm. say, you know, reasonable doubt because this person is in hospice and they're going to die within six months. But when you give them that right. many drugs, a you know healthy young man like yourself, if you gave them the amount of drugs, if they did, you sure. know, if they even kept accurate medical records, right, then that would prove mm-hmm. that you were overdosed and dehydrated and starved to death. It's it's just frustrating yeah. for those of us who have lost loved ones that that is never done. So, and, and but it isn't. Yeah, and that was kind of yeah that was my question to to them as well. You know the I, you know trying to you know understand what the reasoning was, and you know I think these federal prosecutors that are taking these cases, you know, they uh, they err, and, you know, I'm not defending their actions, but trying to just explain kind of what they said to me, but sure. as far as, you know, they err on the side of, you know, we want to make sure we win, we want to make sure that we have absolutely all the proof we need to, to prove whatever we're charging them with, um, and that was my question, too. I said, you know, what about these texts? Like, you hear the text, and hear the person, uh, you know, they die, you know, all these, these patients were maybe, you know, dying or whatever, and I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the the reasoning there, whether, it, you know, right or wrong, I think was, you know, I think I think what was told to me was, you know, just because a text is sent doesn't necessarily mean uh, it happened. You still have to prove that it actually happened. And that, that I think, piece is where it kind of gets difficult. I'm sure it's frustrating for family members and folks who are, you know, touched by this that, you know, that, as far as the legal arm, it's just very difficult for these patients who, because most of them are sick, and that's that's also what they told me too. They said, you know, if it was a younger or more healthy population, and we had these texts, and then we had these deaths, you know, it'd be a lot easier to uh, to prove. But um, you know, given the just the condition of a lot of these patients, and some of them, you know, were you know just days away from from dying, I would imagine. Um, I think that was one other quote that popped out. 
that I saw was, you know, just Mr. Harris finding, wanting to find patients that, you know, would die in, um, you know, in 24 hours or, you know, if, if, it, if, they, if they were on continuous care for three or four days, he would start texting the nurse and say, hey, come on, you know, move this along. Um, you know, chances are if you have a patient like that, they're, they're, they're close to dying anyways. And I think from a, you know, just from a legal standpoint, it was difficult for them to, to really prove to it beyond that. A, a reasonable doubt. But you never know what a jury could, yeah. what a jury could do. So I think they're just very, you know, they're just cautious and wary, weary of, you know, going too far and, and you know, for better or worse. Um, and I'm sure that's a, that's a big frustration for, for those whose, whose family members died, you know, while in the care right. of these, these fraudulent well, folks. I, for one, would love to debate somebody who said that. I won't debate you on it because you're just, you know, you're repeating what they said to you, and, and I get that. But sure. I would love to debate that with somebody who said, who's, who believes that and who says that. Um, they also shut mm-hmm. down the one facility, Novus, and they opened up another one and made Dr. Gibbs become the company director, and money still was funneling back to Bradley Harris. So, I mean, this guy was so deep in just dishonesty and, you know, such bad behavior. So he was 39 years old, which I also find that, interesting that somebody that that is that young was given such a position over you know all these people's lives and he was able to make medical decisions when he had no medical background he was not a doctor so um so i want to sure. move on to yeah, that, the uh, mr harris <laughs> i was going to say that even after he was um the fbi had raided uh, novus in 2015 and kind of started gathering all this ex- evidence um harris actually continued to work for like i think it's uh three or four other maybe two or i think four other healthcare companies that he either worked with or or for sort of as a consultant whatever in addition to the you know novus got raided and he basically just moved the business to another name another entity mm-hmm. that was all the same people even right. after that he worked for a few other um hospice care companies and home health companies that, um, you know, who knows what he was doing there. I assume, you know, uh, trying to instill his, um, you know, evil formula at those places as well. But, yeah, it's amazing that these folks can sort of bounce around and not get, um, you know, not get caught or taken, you know, put in jail or whatever while they're able to kind of continue doing the same thing that they were doing. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah, optimum, optimum health services. So he actually, um, and we, a lot of us watched this case. Um, so he actually admitted his guilt on the 19th of March, 2021. Right. So I right. want to go to the sentencing of what happened. Mm-hmm. Can you go over, just kind of give us an idea yeah. of how, um, how long these people were sentenced for? Right. Yeah, and one interesting, another interesting piece there, kind of along with uh, you know him pleading guilty. Several, I think, four or five of kind of the major players um, pled guilty and then cooperated with uh, with investigators. You know, and and that could be part of why they weren't obviously why they weren't um, you know prosecuted for anything further. You know, the 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 investigators want them to 
they want to get them for something, right? They want to they want to have a, a win, and so if they can get them to kind of plead and flip, that's uh, that's a win for them. And um, you know, I write a lot about fraud, and, and a lot of times, you know, there's whether it's some lower level folks or some business office side, they, they're they're the ones who often say, okay, I'm I'm out. I'll I'll plead guilty. I'll give you what you want. Um, but so often it's the, actually the physicians that hold on that will go to trial with this information. And, you know, I think, you know, I think some folks at the attorney's office, you know, I asked them that. I'm like, you know, in all these fraud cases, like the people with all the evidence, like Bradley Harris had everything that, you know, revealed what was going on. If he's working with the prosecution, in my head, I'm not going to try and go to trial against him because he has all the dirt on me if I'm the physician, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. so often in these cases, the physicians, um, you know, they go to trial and they, you know, they just have, I guess, confidence in what they, you know, that they're a doctor and they'll get, you know, uh, they'll get mercy or they'll be able to connect with the jury or they have, a, you know, just a, a little bit of a God complex maybe sometimes that they, you know, can do no wrong and that they were, you know, doing no harm as they're supposed to be doing. Um but I, w- I just found that interesting that, you know, these two doctors who, uh, yeah, I'll get to the sentencing, sorry, but I just wanted to bring that up that I just thought it was, the you know, the director of operations, a couple of the nurses, uh, Nurse Love, Mr. Harris had all pled guilty and were cooperating and giving away, giving all the text message and testifying at trial of what was going on. But these, you know, a few of these other folks, um, doctors included, kind of held on um, so, right, the yeah. two main doctors, 13, the two, the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doctor Gibbs and. I don't know what they thought they were going to get away with. It seems, um, yeah. seemed like, you know, Mr. Harris would have had everything, all the evidence against them, but they uh, they tried and they lost. But um, so yeah, thirteen defendants total at the end of it for a total of eighty-four years. That's spread amongst them um, as far as. I mean, I could read all of them. Some of the major players, um, Harris, uh, the CEO, got a little, I think, 13 and a half years. Um, Hergy, who's one of the doctors, got 10 years in federal prison. Gibbs, the other doctor, got 12. Um, Nurse Love got eight and a half. Um, a woman named Melanie Murphy, who was the um, director of operations, got five and a half years. Uh, one of the nurses, I think Patricia Armstrong, who eventually also uh, flipped. I think she was a nursing director. Um, she got seven years. So even these folks that cooperated got significant um, prison time for doing right. what they did. Um, so, yeah, there was, I mean, there's some significant jail time. Um, and I think, you know, that might have been, you know, I, I haven't done a full study, but in my experience in working with fraud cases, you know, for just stealing money from Medicare, you don't usually see this, much jail time um so i think there was you know somewhere in there i'm assuming you know sentencing factored in just some of the you know circumstantial evidence about what was really happening there in regard to you know murdering some of these um, patients um but pretty pretty scary stuff for sure all the way around right i think you're right because i think that even though they could not try them for the murder they felt like what they had done to the people in that area was it was so deceitful and harming the people that I think because of exploiting all the patients and the families, I think they actually did consider that 
in their charges. Yeah. And the two doctors, you know, that you're talking about that did not plea guilty, <laughs> they got, you know, very strong sentences, but they also were ordered to pay um, Dr. Gibbs mm-hmm. almost $28 million and Dr. Okay. How do you pronounce her name? Hiji? Yeah, I've heard you Hiji. Yeah, I've never seen it. Hiji? Yeah, yeah. Um, and she had to pay over $16 million. So I think yeah. that the, the judge definitely, you know, socked it to him the most that he probably could. But, mm-hmm. I, you know, I just remember cheering yeah. Yeah, when, you know, when we read that they were guilty, we cheered because this was a just sure. a heinous crime. And for money. That's what it's about. Follow the money. They don't care about human life. They care about money. Right. So. Yeah. And you think, I mean. Um, and the guy, I, interesting, I wonder... the guy who owned the separate physician home that gave out the um, individual identification health information that allowed them to go to people to find patients to bring in, mm-hmm. he was sentenced to um, one and a half years. And one right. person died, I guess, before they had a chance to sentence him. Yeah. So um, um, one of the things yeah, that the I was reading. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. Okay. One of the things that I read that the FBI, um, the lead agent, um, Matthew DeSarno, um he had written some things about this, and he was pretty upset about them violating the Hippocratic Oath as doctors and instead focused on lining their pockets at the expense of patient safety. So he did seem to take that into consideration, although they couldn't really, you know, they didn't pursue that, but he did seem to be compassionate about what they had done. And um, mm-hmm. I was reading that it said, that in 2018, that there were 52 million people on the population, the elderly people, and they were saying that there are expected to be 95 million Americans over the age of 65 by 2060. And these are the people mm-hmm. that are being slated, called, for them to bring into a hospice facility because they're costing money, they don't want to care for them, and it is an easy way to get rid of them and get them off of the Medicare, Medicaid books. So that's that's pretty stunning numbers, 95 sure. million over yeah, the I mean, age the of aging, 65. Yeah, I mean, our aging population, you know, uh, it's only going to make, you know, the hospice industry one that is, you know, uh, more and more profitable as you have more and more options for patients and that sort of thing. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, as, as you all know, I mean, hospice is a, such an attractive or can be such an attractive service and can be an, an incredible service for, for folks when done um, correctly. You know, my, my wife, she's actually a palliative care physician um, and uh, for, for actually for, for children. So that's kind of a very sad, depressing Thing that her job has to exist, but you know, I've seen the impact of, of great end of life care, and um, you know, and it's 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 hospice is super popular because 
um, oftentimes it you know does a really great service. But there are some incentives, which I'm sure you you know discussed ad nauseum on the on the show about you know connected to the hospice industry that um, result or make it uh, you know attractive for fraudsters. Um, you know whether it's right. just you get paid per day instead of per service or per you know outcome or whatever. Um, you know there's lots of you know, to a patient, if, if someone comes up to me and says, hey, you know, we want to help out your mom. It's not going to cost you anything. She's going to get more services, um, this and that. You know, the average person would say, yeah, sure, that sounds fine. I don't have to pay anything else. Okay. Um, you know, and that just leads to, uh, you know, unfit folks ending up on these hospice roles and, uh, you know, then eventually being, exited because they can only be on there for six months and if they weren't sick then they're probably still alive and now they just lost a bunch of services that they you know thought they had and um yeah it's definitely uh there's just there's a lot of misplaced incentives there which i'm sure i'm not i'm not saying anything new to you all right let me let me say something on that um the six months it's supposed to be you know someone who they expect if the natural disease if the disease continues naturally that that person will die within six months so if they have congestive heart failure or um, COPD or kidney failure something like that it does not mean there's an mm-hmm. aggregate cap so like um, this year I think it's like thirty two thousand dollars per patient so the hospice gets if they have ten patients they get thirty two thousand dollars for each of those patients and that equates to about mm-hmm. six months. If somebody comes in, as was with Novus Hospice, and they die in 10 days or they die in two months, then they still can use that amount of money. It's a, um, an aggregate. It's like put into a big bucket. <laughs> so if somebody dies in okay. two months, they still have those 10, 10 times that amount that they can use for somebody else. So it does not mean that oh. if you outlive six months, that you know that you get pushed out the door and you can no longer be in hospice it doesn't mean that you can still be in hospice if you're in a good hospice and they're allowing you to live it just means money that somebody else who came into hospice at the very end of their life and died in 10 days or five days a shorter period that money is goes into this pot and then that person who's living six months two years, you know, whatever, they mm-hmm. will be using part of that money. So it's an aggregate cap, an yeah. annual aggregate cap times the number of patients that any hospice has. So I, I just okay. want to clarify that, that for yeah, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I sorry. just want to clarify uh, that for anybody that's listening. I was, reading, I was reading a story. Um, yeah, I was reading a story, yeah, that I was talking about, I guess, not good hospices that was – you know, pushing people out after six months for that reason, um, you know, because the payment was coming from somewhere else. Maybe they didn't have to, but they were ch- choosing to because of funding things. Uh, but obviously that's not best practice. So um, I did want to add, you know, that uh, that at least Dr. Gibbs and Dr. Hershey and one of the nurses are appealing their conviction um, Mr. Harris also did, did appeal, but his was dismissed, um, so he's he's locked in. Um, but the rest of these folks, I think their 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 appeal is still pending. Um, I was I was digging through the legal documents. Oh, okay. Looks like they're still kind of working working those appeals. Um, you know, that's pretty common, and all the you know everyone appeals after they get convicted. So 
we will see mm-hmm. if any of those sentences hold or get dismissed, but that's kind of ongoing, so something to something to follow and something that I'll be following as well to see what happens. Okay, yeah, let me know. If I happen to miss that, just, you know, kind of send me an email. If, if you do a story on that or you mm-hmm. hear that, and then I can update our yeah, sure listeners on that. Sure, that's great. Uh, I, I don't think they should get it, and, I, and hopefully they don't. You know, if there is any justice, they don't. Their life should be over right. as they know it. Um, okay, I want to move yeah. on to um, Dr. Death, a.k.a. Christopher Dunst, um, not to be confused with Dr. Kevorkian. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, when I read about his case after you and I talked, I have just been appalled at what a monster this man is, whether it's because he was ignorant. He's a spinal surgeon, and some of the things that he did were like either he was not capable of doing the surgery or he just was an evil monster. So can you, you know, let's go to him, talk about him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I will. Uh, I'll give a couple plugs. One for my own company, but one for someone else. Uh, so, Doctor Death. That that term was actually coined by my colleague at D Magazine named Matt Goodman. He uh, he had my job before I did. Um, he's still with us at at, at D Mag. Um, he wrote a 2016 feature called Doctor Death. So you should go look it up and read it. It's very detailed. It's kind of still in the moment um, ish. Um, it hadn't all played out uh, by then. Um, there's also a great podcast also called Dr. Death by a journalist named Laura Beal, who's also a um, colleague of mine. I've gotten to chat with her and get to know her over the years, and it's really great. Uh, you know, so they'll, if you want to dive deep on this guy, there's two places to do that. Um, but yeah, Dr. Dunch was a, uh, was a surgeon who... Um, Where's that movie? Let me stop you for a second. Let me stop you for oh, a second. Where is the that movie? The movie I think is on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, okay. Uh, and yeah, it's called Doctor Death. Yeah, I think it's a somewhat. Yeah, I think it's a somewhat. I'm not sure if it's, you know, it's not uh, super, um, you know, it's not nonfiction. I think there's a little bit of fictionalized action, but a lot of it is is true. It's really good. I liked it. I like the show. It's got Alec Baldwin and Christian Slater and Joshua Jackson. Um, and it's really great. Um, so yeah, that's a good. It might. I'm not even sure what streaming platform it's on. It might be a mm-hmm. Peacock or. I can't remember. I can't follow. But anyways, um, yeah. So well, they didn't have Peacock. to make anything um, up because the things that that I right. read about him are, are horrific. I, they didn't have to make anything up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's plenty there. I mean, imagine they had to. You know, some moments they didn't, but. Yeah, so he was, uh, you know, he was um, kind of grew up in in Tennessee. Um, he played uh, football in college, and then went on to, um, you know, uh, be a neurosurgeon. And, um, you know, he ended up in in Dallas, Texas. Um, there's lots of details about and questions about his training and whether he, you know, went through went through enough uh, training. But ended up in in Dallas, Texas at um, hospital called Baylor Scott and White in Plano and Baylor Scott and White is the largest uh, nonprofit health system in in Texas and they're they're huge and have um, you know 
uh, dozens of hospitals in North Texas, Central Texas. Um, it's, a com it's a combination of two, two uh, health systems. Um, and so he gets a job there and, you know, basically uh, from the start kind of is terrible at his job and is, um, you know, like you said, he, he maimed or killed, uh, I think it was 33 of 38 patients. Um, so some of these folks are ending up paralyzed. Some of them, you know, their vocal cords are cut. Um, I mean, it's just it's horrific uh, injuries um, to folks. And he came from a really, like, highly regarded um, residency program that kind of gave him the stamp of approval. Um, and so he had all these kind of accolades. He also had a, he did an MD-PhD program, so he also had this um, company he was trying to start on the side uh, that, um, you know, had to do with, you know, neurosurgery care. I don't remember all the details there. But anyways, he basically goes in and, um, you know, makes uh, mistakes that are painfully obvious to everyone involved, um, you know, whether it's the, the nurse or the anesthesiologist or other surgeons are saying, you know, this guy, if he, if he had the training he says he had, you know, wouldn't be making these mistakes, wouldn't be doing these things. Um, you know, all this time he also has all sorts of relational troubles and drugs and alcohol problems, and he's, you know, coming into the hospital wearing the same clothes and, um, you know, uh, in, in meetings and in patient encounters sort of uh, clearly, you know, on drugs or inebriated and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I think two of the patients um, ended up dying because of their, their surgeries. Um, one, uh, one at Baylor Plano. And um, the, the, the scariest part here for me was just the sort of the passing along of Dr. Death or Dr. Dunch uh, from one hospital to the next without really, um, you know, you'd think Baylor Plano, okay, he maims, you know, six or so people there. One dies, like you shut this guy down, like you report him, you don't, you tell everyone this guy's terrible, you know, uh, don't let him work anywhere else. Um, but that's not what happened. Baylor Plano actually uh, gave him a letter saying, um, you know, there were no issues with uh, with him here at our hospital that allowed him to get another job um, at another Dallas Medical Center, also kind of in the DFW area. Um, where he, uh, yeah, went on to um, um, kill someone else and maim some other people. And, you know, what, what always struck me was, and even after that, he went to, you know, two or three other facilities. And, you know, again, it comes down, for me, it comes down to incentives of, you know, the hospital that hired him, um, you know, did not originally, did not do their due diligence in, vetting this guy and really seeing if he was trained as he said he was um, and, you know, by, um, you know, by bringing him to, to light, whether it's via law enforcement or the medical board or just telling other employers, you know, they are, uh, they look bad themselves, right? Because we hired this guy, we didn't stop him after the first thing or, you know, we didn't properly vet him or check these check his training and resources, and so we're just going to, you know, close our eyes and cross our fingers and, and pass him along and not say anything, and that, um, you know, was always the scariest part to me that these hospitals and health systems are 
you know, incentivized not to report these physicians. Um, you know, and, and another striking thing, you know, doctors often, you know, really stick together, um, will rarely testify against each other, but, but um, you know, the reason, you know, Dr. Dunch eventually got caught, I think more or less, is because there were other surgeons that he had worked with and that knew what he was doing that basically went to the Dallas County DA and said, this guy is killing people, this guy is, you know, either doesn't know what he's doing or is, you know, a complete sociopath and is murdering people on the oper- and, and, and paralyzing people on the operating table. Um, and it took a while to get to get anyone's attention, to get the attention of the medical board, to get the DA to want to prosecute the case. Um, obviously, the hospital people wanted nothing to do with it and, you know, did not um, raise an alarm. It was the, it was fellow physicians kind of, um, you know, uh, yeah, contacting law enforcement, contacting hospitals where they knew he worked and saying, no, you can't hire this guy. And they said, you know, they would come back with, well, you know, Baylor Plano said he's fine, you know, and again, it all comes down to money, uh, as most things do, right? That neurosurgeons bring in, uh, millions, mm-hmm. you know, one, I think, uh, at the time, I think in Matt's article, he looked up that a neurosurgeon can bring in, you know, 2.51 neurosurgeon, a couple, few million dollars, if not more, uh, to the hospital, um, per year. And, and, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's especially for a, a smaller hospital or, you know, to have a, to have a neurosurgeon that can bring in these really expensive treatments and operations and that sort of thing. Um, can really be a big boon to to a hospital, so they're not going to ask too many questions. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure that's a that's a common refrain in all industries, but healthcare is uh, no different, unfortunately. Well, and you, everybody's always talking about you know that we don't have enough doctors, we don't have enough nurses, and everybody's short-staffed. And so I'm sure when you have a spinal surgeon come in that you are assuming, and that's why I say in my lead-in, that you have to be careful and that you cannot just assume that somebody is vetted. I mean, we've had lots of cases where we've heard of hospice nurses that have felon cases against them. They've been convicted. And here they are, Mm a hospice nurse in charge of, you know, someone's life, and you're talking about a surgeon that you're going to let him, you know, take a knife and open you up. And he was, um, mm-hmm. I was just looking, they, he got $65,000 for every surgery that he did, for every spinal surgery, and mm-hmm. he was making 600000 Where yeah. I had that written down here. He yeah, made so $600,000 a year. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, he's, he's yeah, just bringing in the money, and, plus bonuses. Yeah, and I think one interesting yeah, one interesting thing that came out, you know, through, through I don't know if Cameron was the podcast or the story or where it popped up, but just, you know, it did sort of eventually come out that his original training was, um, I think he had done, he had either been a part of or done, you know, a hundred surgeries when it's supposed to have been a thousand, um, and I don't know how that happened or if he just you know uh if it, if it was just laziness or if he lied or you know whatever it, whatever it was um you know i think or just they wanted to move him along you know whatever the case may be um you know they eventually you know once all this came out like law enforcement did the vetting that that 
that healthcare organizations should have done and found out, you know, this guy mm-hmm. was actually never properly trained, at, you know, to start with, um, but just kept being passed along and, you know, um, I'm well, it's honestly like the Peter surprised. Principle, right? If somebody doesn't want to work with yeah. somebody and they want to get them out of their office, the Peter Principle, and they talk about how wonderful and great they are and somebody else hires them and now they're off your books, you don't have to worry about it. But where is your pride mm-hmm. and, you know, the respect right. that people are going to have for you by you lying to somebody and saying that? I, You know, I'd rather be totally honest about it. No, I wouldn't hire this person. So he did, right. um, he claimed to have yeah. graduated yeah, um, magna cum laude from St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital with a doctorate in microbiology, mm-hmm. a program the, hospi- the hospital did not offer at the time that he allegedly attended. So, I mean, there were lies sure. in his, when he first came to work for uh, Baylor, Scott, and White, or Plano. Mm-hmm. Uh, that yeah. he lied about that there when he first work, came uh, to them. Yeah, there was... Sure, yeah, there so was there work were, that could have been done um, that you know could have headed off a lot of this. Right. Well, there were five. I was looking. There were five surgeries that he did um, with his victims at Plano before they finally said no. You know this can't go on, and they allowed they revoked his surgical privileges, but. They allowed him to resign instead of firing him, and that's how mm-hmm. he was able to go right. then work at Dallas Medical Center, and they were waiting to get mm-hmm. the go-ahead from, they went ahead and gave him temporary rights to do surgery while they waited until they vetted him, and in that case, he wound up killing Floella Brown and maiming Mary Eford in that short period of time. Exactly. And they yeah, quickly... He lasted, lasted a, yeah, he was... Go ahead. I was just saying, yeah, he lasted, you know, I think a week at Dallas Medical Center, or he was not there long, and just in that right. in, the, in that short time period, he's, you know, causing all sorts he, of all yeah, sorts of damage. killing one person. Um, yeah, killing one person and maiming the other. And what I found, um, what I wanted to kind of go over a little bit, was that he put... He operated on the wrong side of the body in often cases. He put screws in muscle tissue instead of the bone. He, one gentleman, he put um, a screw in and he stripped it so it could never be removed. And if it's ever removed, the guy would bleed to death. Um, one person in his esophagus, he thought that it was a tumor. He took it out. It was part of his, the muscle and the guy could never speak again. Right. And there were several people that, um, you know, couldn't walk. Even a friend of his, Jerry Summers, he did surgery on him and botched the surgery, and he had, you know, couldn't feel his legs and eventually walked with a cane, and he died ultimately from years later, but from the surgical procedures. And Summers says um, when they went to trial on this that he and – Dr. Dunst had done cocaine the night before the surgery. So, I mean, you're right. There were drugs Mm -hmm. involved, you know, alcohol, people that smelled alcohol in his breath. And I'm just thinking if you're a doctor and a doctor, a surgeon, 
comes in and he's got a scalpel in his hand, how in the world could you not report that he smells of liquor or that you see that he is acting erratic? And in the case that you wrote on yeah. with um, the young lady who fell putting garland up, Kelly Martin, um, if you want to talk about what happened mm-hmm. in the operating room with her, they were notified that there was too much blood. And he basically told the mm-hmm. other doctor to shut up, I know what I'm doing, and she died, went to cardiac arrest and died from lack of blood after waking up and feeling her legs and slapping her legs because there wasn't enough blood to go through her legs. They had turned purple and blue. And they put her back under with the anesthesia, yeah. started doing you know, compressions, and she died. He, he had no remorse for that. And the family, for a 45-minute operation that was supposed to be just very general operation, four hours later, and the guy's wife and the two daughters' mother is dead. Yeah, you know. such, a, such a tragic story there, and you know, there's a lot of a lot of things at play, right? So there's there's the aspect of the hospital doesn't want to report because then they look bad for hiring him, right? Or they have to, you know, or if they they fire him, you know, they have to maybe he'll sue, you know. And now there's a whole big thing. So like you said, it's a little easier just to pass him along, give him a give him a thumbs up, um, and then even within the hospital, like you know, there's such a hierarchy, um, whether it's based on education or even uh, money that you make or money you bring into the hospital that, you know, and and neurosurgeons are about at the top of of the pyramid any way you slice it as far as amount of training, you know, difficulty, uh, you know, a good neurosurgeon that is. Um, And, you know, there's definitely uh, that hierarchy can be pretty, you know, pretty impactful for within an operating room and a, you know, a nurse or a surgery tech or an anesthesiologist, you know, no one wants to question the sort of, uh, you know, alleged alpha in the room. Um, and so there's, you know, there's, there's that pressure, right. Of, am I going to, am I going to put myself on the line to speak out against this person who I think is doing the wrong thing, but, um, you know, but, but maybe not, right. There's always that question in the back of your mind, perhaps, and that's what came through in the story that I was contacted by. I got in touch with a man named Anson Fulton, who was a surgery tech with Dr. Dunch at Baylor Scott and White and Planner, just for one surgery. Um, and, you know, what he told me was, you know, what you'd expect in a way after you kind of know the story a little bit. Um, you know, he said, you know, it's, it's being in the presence of a psycho, uh, sociopath, it's a very ominous feeling, you know, and he could just tell that this this person was just sort of a dark a dark influence um on what was happening and you know he's he comes in and he's first you know he's rude to everyone you know why wasn't my patient ready um repeats himself a bunch um yeah and it was supposed to be this sort of minimally invasive uh procedure 45 minutes in and out um you know in the surgery tech he had seen a lot of surgeries not a surgeon himself but you know you watch enough you kind of know how it's supposed to go and he you know right from the start could tell the way he was handling uh the patient that he didn't really know what he was doing um and uh you know he 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 actually engaged dr death and said hey i'm not sure 
you know, this is supposed to do this or that, which I'm sure is a risk in itself. And, of course, he snapped back, you know, I don't need your help. Um, uh, yeah, Kelly Martin starts losing all sorts of blood um, when she wasn't supposed to. This wasn't supposed to be, a, uh, you know, I think it was supposed to be an inch-long incision. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, they're incorporating this machine called the Cell Saver to make sure that this blood is getting pumped back into the body while it's happening. Um, you know, the guy's done just telling to mind your own business um, the whole time, you know, so there's this intimidation factor happening throughout all this. Um, you know, she's losing even more blood, um, you know, and eventually, yeah, like you said, she wakes up, and that was the last time she ever woke up, and she's still kind of intubated, but she's conscious, and she's, you know, her legs are modeling, like you said, and that's, you know, a sign of blood not getting there, um, you know, and, and finally the anesthesiologist comes in and kind of, uh, you know, puts her back to sleep. Um, eventually she, you know, she arrests, she has a cardiac arrest, and, um, you know, they bring her back, they go to the ICU, and, yeah, Dunch kind of checked out after he was out of it. He wasn't sort of, you know, waiting and watching and wanting to help. He went back to his computer and started, you know, writing notes or doing whatever, um, he was, you know, whatever he was doing, um, he didn't, he was not, he was not involved. So after a couple hours, she, you know, she, she died from, from the surgery and just from losing too much blood. And, you know, uh, no one really notified the fa- the family throughout any of this process until she was already dead, which is, I mean, just horrible to, you know, be waiting around for what you think is a routine procedure. And, you know, four hours later, um, uh, to hear that your, you know, family member, died in what was supposed to be a routine surgery. Um, mm-hmm. so, and then, yeah, pretty, you know, especially when story. it's elective, you know, when it's a surgery, you know, right. she was in pain, but, you know, when you go in for an, elect, an elective surgery and then you don't come out, you're just kind of in total shock. And, you know, what he did was totally either he didn't know what he was doing but even when somebody pointed it out, he he would not back off, and then, you know, put pump the blood back into her so that she was not losing the blood. But he actually um, wrote an email to a friend that you know I wanted to point mm-hmm. out because um, he told them that he thought about leaving the love and kindness and goodness and patience and becoming a cold-blooded serial killer. And they found an email that he had written to um, one place I read said a girlfriend, somebody else said that he had written that to a friend. But so he, I mean, I think he knew what he was doing. And the prosecutors, uh, the defense team said he made mistakes, but it was because he was poorly trained and inexperienced. Really? The man's a sociopath. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. I know that was one of the one of the questions that we were, you know, supposed to talk about was, you know, whether he was, you know, is he is he intending to murder? Is he just delusional? Does he think he's better than he is? Is he is he poorly trained? I mean, the email would suggest that he obviously had that feeling in him. You know, I I always go back to his um, his buddy Jerry Summers, who he you know, had known growing up and eventually lived with him here in Dallas and they partied and did drugs together and, you know, it leaves him a, a briefly a quadriplegic after he, after the surgery. And, you know, that to me, 
you know, I guess if you're a sociopath, maybe you don't really have any friends at all. But that one always, to me, was the most surprising, you know, because if you mm-hmm. are this, you know, uh, total, if you're doing everything totally intentionally, you know, don't you tell your buddy, like, no, let's get you a real, let's get you a surgeon that right. knows what they're doing. So, right. you know, I, I go back and forth on is he totally walking into the operating room saying, I'm about to maim or murder this person? Or is it sort of just this, you know, this delusion that he had talked himself into that he thought he knew what he was doing? And if you would have asked him, he would pass a polygraph and say, yes, I'm, I'm a great surgeon. I know what he's doing. But it was all delusional. And then it led to all these instances. And I think you throw that in with the drugs and alcohol and all the relationship turmoil. He's dating his, you know, office manager and then another woman. And, you know, there's all sorts of drama there that that kind of, twists itself up in a, you know, in a mind that's losing itself to, and ends up writing things about being a cold-blooded killer, you know, because so I think, think if he's a cold-blooded he, killer, I'm sure he could have. Do you think maybe he was just insane? I mean, he really saw himself as a good surgeon, that he knew what he was doing when he when he first goes in there and cuts somebody open, yeah. but he's just insane? I mean, well, I think it's a little bit of both because I do think he was actually poorly trained. I don't think he got the, the amount of training he should have in the first place. Mm-hmm. But I think along the way he got the confidence of someone who did have the good training, and he got the, you know, some of the accolades of someone that 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 was well trained, and that got him these jobs. And so, you know, you walk in and you're Mr. Neurosurgeon, and you're making all this money and this and that, like all that kind of gets into your ego and gets into your mindset and leads you to really believe it, you know, inside your head, whether or not you actually know what you're doing. And, yeah. you know, with each of these surgeries, you know, uh, someone that's, you know, has a personality disorder or whatever, you can always make an excuse. Oh, this person, you didn't do this right, anesthesiologist. Oh, this person, they had a thing that made this surgery different, right? And I think, you know, in the conversations that came out afterwards, after all these surgeries, he had those kind of defenses up about how this one was uh, difficult or especially hard because X, Y, and Z, and, you know, you can talk yourself in addition to other people into that and really believe, you know what, this is actually, I am good. This was just a, this is a really complicated case and there was nothing, I did my best and sorry, you know, that's just how it goes sometimes. Well, um, they you know, had, I don't, um, I, I don't I, you know, I don't know. After reading all of the things, you know, that he did um, in <laughs> You know, one part that he severed a vocal cord, cut a hole in the esophagus, sliced an artery, stuffed a surgical sponge, and this is on Jeff Glidewell's case, stuffed a surgical sponge in his throat to stop the bleeding and closed the sponge up in place despite others assisting that procedure, said don't do that. The sponge triggered a severe Mm -hmm. blood-borne infection that caused sepsis. And then other doctors discovered the sponge and Dunst refused to return to help remove it. The doctors who opened Jeff back up said it was the work of a crazed maniac, that Glidewell was left with only one vocal cord, permanent damage to his esophagus, and partial paralysis on his left side. Dr. Kirby stated such a botched surgery had not happened in the United States before. Jeff Glidewell has undergone more than 50 procedures to correct the damage. And he was Dr. Yeah. Dunst 
last surgery. So, he, right. you know, I mean, obviously he was, I, I believe he was incompetent. I do believe that. I don't believe that he was a skilled surgeon. But he, as, as you've said, his arrogance, I guess, would not let him admit that he wasn't a good surgeon. And, sure. you know, he just continued this. And, and everyone, I mean, I'm wondering about the five because it's 33 out of 38 that were botched. So yeah. there were five surgeries that were successful. And were they like before he came to um, Plano? Just curious. You know, obviously yeah, five times he got it right. Timeline. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the exact timeline on that. I do think Plano was his first job, so maybe they were amongst his Plano surgeries. Um, I don't, I'm not 100% sure on the timeline. Mm-hmm. But you know what? What you said just now made me remember a scene, which I don't know if this is true, but it's in the it's in the the uh, Peacock movie of him at football practice in college, and you know the coach is telling him to do something, and he um, you know does the wrong thing. And gets back up, and the coach says, Dunch, what are you doing? Da, 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 da. And he's like, Okay, coach, I got it. I got it this time. I got it this time. And they basically, you know, each time he's getting like leveled because he's going in the wrong place and he's getting, you know, hit super hard and he just keeps getting back up. And he's like, No, no, okay, this time I'll get it. This time I'll get it. And I think it was, you know, whether it was true or not, I think it served as a really interesting metaphor for, yeah, just his arrogance and sort of delusion that, you know, I am, a, I am good at this thing. And uh, I can do it. And if it's if it goes wrong, it's you know not my fault. And you know I I think that that came into into play in the you know during the trial of you know they were able to bring into um, into court you know and talk about all these other even though they really focused on Mary Efford's maiming there at the end they were able to bring in a lot of these uh, folks who had been maimed or family members to talk about you know to really to prove that okay, if you are incompetent, you should have known by now and you were clearly doing things that, uh, you know, a reasonable person would, would know, hey, I'm not good at this. I should not keep doing this. Um, and I think that's where, you know, the case really fell was, you know, incompetent, you know, whether you were trying to kill people or not, doesn't really matter because of the number of, you know, unsuccessful surgeries, you should have known uh, what was going to happen, and therefore, but, and yet you kept doing it, right? And so, right. And you're that's responsible. That's why you have life in prison, and that's why, yeah, and that's why he's the only, you know, he's the only person to be convicted of a criminal charge based on something that happened in the operating room. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's a, a rarity for, for, as I'm sure you, you have probably talked about many cases of doctors doing things that they should be tried criminally for, but they aren't. Um, uh, you know, this was the first time that had ever happened, and it mm-hmm. it took and a lot, was. right? It took, it took, yeah. it took uh, you know, 33 people being named or killed. Well, one of the ones that I, that I also found interesting, well, all of them I found horrible. When I say interesting, um, I, you know, and I'm, I'm not a, a thrill seeker by reading horrible things, but I'm just I'm appalled by what went on. But Barry um, Morgaloff, um, which he was the owner of a pool service company, and he was left with bone fragments 
in his spinal um, canal after he tried to pull a damaged disc from his back. And initially, he refused to give him any pain medicine, claiming he was a drug seeker. So he's going to sure. do surgically surgical procedure on someone without giving them um, any drugs to put them to sleep while he does the surgery. And I found that just shocking because that's illegal to do that, and I can't imagine that everybody in that operating room would have stopped him and said, you do not do surgery on somebody without putting them under, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that, uh, yeah. you know, was – and somebody else, that they when they came out, they had a lot of pain, and then he wound up giving them Percocet, just kept giving them more, you know, instead of doing the surgery properly because the surgery was done wrong, they had pain. He gave them prescription for Percocet. The guy wound up becoming a drug addict, lost his job, lost his wife, lost his family, lost everything and was still in a great deal of pain. So some of the people, you know, didn't die, but their life was ruined. Yeah. I mean, totally, completely, completely tragic. And like you said, for for many of these things, are supposed to be were elective and supposed to be pretty non-invasive, and you know, just to have your life, um, you know, irreparably damaged or or lose your life is right for um, that. Shocking. So, um, so tell us that what happened to him ultimately after the trial. Yeah. So he was. Yeah, so uh, the trial lasted 13 days. The jury, uh, jury only needed four hours to deliberate. Um, so he was, um, you know, convicted of naming uh, Mary Efford, and um, mostly the prosecutors kind of put a high priority on that on that particular charge. Although there were several, it was six felony counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, five accounts of serious bodily injury. And one count of injury to an elderly person, and that was the Mary Efford charge. Um, had the widest sentencing range. So, yeah, he was, uh, you know, convicted of um, life in prison, and uh, he appealed, and it was, it was denied uh, in 2018. Um, and yeah, that's where that's where he uh, he remains. But he was in jail for like two years before the trial started, and basically had to be appointed a lawyer. All his money was gone. Um, he has two kids with one of with I think his either former nurse or uh, someone he worked with. Um, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but uh, he was in a nurse or sort of the clinic director that he had a relationship with and has has a couple kids with. So add on to the tragedy of of losing you know their dad and that sort of thing to uh, life in life in prison. But he also um, where I read that he had shot someone's dog, um, a neighbor's dog, because she was helping one of the victims? Oh, that was right. uh, that was Reynaldo Ortiz. That was the anesthesiologist oh, guy. Oh, okay. We can talk All about right. him, so we're gonna mo- Okay, so we're going to move on to him now. and We, we have ten minutes. So, um, yeah, he's <laughs> eligible. Dr. Dunst is eligible for parole in 2045, and he'll be 74 years old. And I wrote notes down right. here. I pray is never released, or someone does surgery on him while he is in prison. So that that was the note that I wrote to myself. 
Okay, so um, this is a, a new case that's going on. So I've, we've got a few minutes to touch on that one, if you will go over um, the uh, anesthesiologist. Yeah, sure. This um, yeah, this is a pretty another pretty wild and scary one. Um, the um, I actually have a, a, my basically I, a friend of a friend is one of the one of the victims, shockingly. Um, but this guy. His name is Dr. Ronaldo Ortiz. He's an anesthesiologist here in uh, here in Dallas area. Um, and he was working at a facility, also a Baylor Scott and White facility called Baylor Scott and White Health Surgicare North Dallas. And um, you know the 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 questions about him started when basically this summer there were three or four cases in a row at this surgery, this surgery center, the non-hospital you know, outpatient surgery center where people were doing things like, uh, every, I think, anything from like a nose job to ACL repair. I mean, these were all elective outpatient surgeries. Um, and like three or four young, healthy um, patients all ended up in the ICU uh, with cardiac issues after their surgery. So, uh, you know, that kind of raised the alarm, and they went back and they found out that these folks had, um, you know, doses of uh, nerve-blocking agent called, uh, I'll probably say it wrong, bupivacaine, um, other stimulant, epinephrine, you know, uh, heart medicine, lidocaine uh, in their bodies. And uh, luckily these folks weren't. Um, weren't killed, but ended up in the ICU and eventually recovered. Were okay, and um, but that sort of put uh, that sort of got folks' attention. You know what's going on here? Why are these three patients, three different surgeries, and uh, they started kind of asking questions. And at, and then they start. And then the next piece was um, a, an anesthesiologist from that same center had died earlier in, in I think June of this year. And she had died uh, what they thought was a heart attack. Um, but now they're starting to question, okay, what's going on? This lady dies. And what she had done, she had taken an IV home from her work. It's probably not advisable, but, you know, she's an anesthesiologist. She's probably done it before. And she administered herself an IV at home uh, after she was feeling dehydrated and immediately had a heart attack and died. At the time, they didn't really think about it. They didn't really ask questions. They thought just you know, freak tragedy, so, you know, nothing, no real investigation was happening. But then when these other three patients had similar cardiac symptoms, they started trying to connect the dots. Um, they go back and they uh, test her body. They find um, the, same, the same drugs in her body. They find the same drugs in, in the IV bag. Um, the next thing, you know, they go back and uh, there's video surveillance of this Dr. Ortiz kind of putting in warmer bags, or sorry, putting in IV bags into these warmers outside the operating room during surgeries. And he was careful to never do it to his own surgery. They were never ones that he was involved with, but they were all, but all these bad surgeries um, that happened uh, occurred, and they ended up like connecting like 12 or 14 to him, I think, happened while he was working. Um, And of course, you dive into this guy's history, and he has all sorts of you know, both criminal and uh, medical discipline that he experienced throughout his career. He had been forced to have a physician sort of oversee his practice because of uh, bad outcomes in the past. He had, I think, three different domestic violence um, 
sort of uh, charges, in one of which cases, the one you were talking about, that he, you know, had shot, uh, I guess, a neighbor was helping an ex-girlfriend or ex-partner of his sort of get away from him or escape whatever the situation was. And so Dr. Ortiz, um, yeah, shot this guy's dog, ended up in doing, you know, a few weeks in uh, prison in, or in jail in Collin County, north of, north of Dallas County. Uh, where he lived, and so he had this pretty extensive criminal and, uh, you know, medical discipline history before he got to the current facility wherein, uh, you know, and all these folks are testifying or, or reporting out now that worked with him that he was, right before all these negative surgery outcomes happened, he had been talking about how the medical board was screwing him and this and that, and, you know, he's just very emotional and volatile and, you know, how he was, you know, and I guess the insinuation would be that he, you know, is now taking it out on these patients by um, poisoning. You know, they found these IV bags that had holes in them that someone had injected, you know, these medicines into these IV bags that were then placed and used in these surgeries, and that the one anesthesiologist took one of them home and, and gave to herself and died. So, I mean, such a super scary, I mean, medical terrorist was the term kind of coined by uh, some of the law enforcement folks. Uh, but that's a right. quick version of his story. Well, and it's, it sounds like maybe he wanted the people that the other anesthesiologists that would use it, you know, because it wasn't on his surgeries, that they would use it, and then it would be because it was their fault, and I'm so good because that never happens to my patient. You know, I'm just assuming that might have been part of what he was trying to relay. I'm better than them yeah, because my patients don't die. Yeah, Sick. Yeah, retaliating against the facility slash, because um, I think I think there were some investigations going on from his employer and people were asking questions. So I think he's getting back at the yeah fellow physicians, other people involved in the operations, as well as just mm-hmm. the the company in general. Um, but yeah, really just lashing out at, of course, innocent you know surgery um, you know innocent victims. Uh, we're just we're yeah. just trying to get a a surgery done. Um, well, that yeah, was super, an excellent few minutes. Um, you know, co- you covered all of that very, very well in those few minutes. So I appreciate that. And um, a lot of good information. Yeah. I hope the listeners um, have, I, I don't want to use the word enjoy, but um, have listened to this and realized that you cannot just assume that doctors are vetted and that you've got a good doctor. You have to do your research. Knowledge is power. So, um, mm-hmm. well, thank you so yeah. much for coming on tonight and, you know, going through all of these cases with us. We could have gone, you know, another half hour um, on them. I appreciate you coming on. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to us um, on our segments. And in closing, I'd like to wish everybody a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, a joyous Kwanzaa, and a Happy New Year. And we will be back in January starting our fifth year of sharing information with you. So, um, Will, thank you. I'll give you the last minute. Uh, well, my pleasure, and thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. It was um yeah, it was, it was um, like you said, not fun, but, but interesting to, to look back at all these cases and kind of brush up for you. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it can, it can be a scary world out there. And like you say, it's good to, good to be educated and know what questions to ask. And, um, 
and try and uh, try and do your best for your loved ones. Um, I will give my a little a little uh, shameless plug. If if any uh, North Texas listeners are out there and want to talk to me about um, you know a healthcare issue, uh, you can hit me up at will.maddox at dmagazine.com, and I'm happy to hear your story and hear you out. But thank you so much, Marsha, for having me. I, I uh, really enjoyed talking with you. Okay, great. And um, let me know if any of those um, people on the Novus case get, you know, actually get a uh, second hearing and get off. And also I'll be following on the Dr. Ortiz to kind of see how that comes out because he's, he's got some issues too. So um, until then, good night, everybody, sure. and thank you for tuning in. And good night, Will. Appreciate you coming on. We'll talk later. All right, my pleasure. All right. Okay. All right. Good night. Good night, Marty.